There was a picture of the USS Arizona, big battleship. And in the text, it said nobody's ever sunk a battleship from the air. Pearl Harbor Day, a week later. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grimerica Show. Uh, we are going to be chatting with Stanton Friedman himself a little bit later. Um, so we've been looking forward to that for a while. And, of course, we were joined by listener James Nation for his donation of a laptop for the studio, which was valued at $432, (laughs) uh, which, of course, is the fee to get you the donation amount that gets you an interview with the guest of your choosing. Um, But first, as always... Graham, who's this intro for Dunlop? How's it going, buddy? Hey, not too bad. Pretty good. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> I like that. Hey, let you down. Wait, I got a special one picked out for you for Christmas. Oh, thanks. Yeah. No, it was great to have James in here. Um, of course, it's it's upon American approval, I'm sure, right? But but James wanted to have Stanton Friedman on. He's pretty excited about that. But I got to give James uh, James's band a little plug here. He plays in Calgary. Fucking great singer, great band, like it's totally rocks. And they play at Morgan's Pub and uh, King's Head, I think. So check out Wasted Nation, and you'll find out where they're playing. I was at the King's Head by. Um, oh, were you Saturday? Huh. Yeah, because while well, we went to the comedy club for my wife's Christmas party in the limo, in the shitty limo. <laughs> I don't was think- it one of those? Old limos? Yeah, it was like cold in there. <laughs> so I couldn't get the heat up. The stereo didn't work. Oh, no way. What? So we were just playing music out of someone's iPhone. <laughs> and then we went to the comedy show. That was all right. So I ran into Seabass at the comedy show. We had dinner there. And the chef like came out and gave us a heads up when he was going to open the buffet. So we were all ready. So we were the first ones to eat. Because he knew it was a uh, party, I guess. And but that was over early. That was over early, and the limo wasn't coming back till eleven, so we had to kill an hour and a half. So we went to Kingshead, and I just watched a hockey game. Was there a live band there? Yeah. Was it good? Uh, it rock, not rock? as good as Wasted Nation. Yeah, they're, they're, those guys are they're fucking awesome. I love it. Um. Yeah. So that was all right. The comedy show was good. That guy was a fucking mean prick. Like you do not it never sit in the front row of a comedy. Did you show. sit in the front row? No. Oh. There's some other guys who was like, call him the one guy retard. And I was just like, whoa, <laughs> this is off base. First he started bitching about the Lebanese club owners. And he's like, oh, yeah, I, got a, I got a weak gig here with these Lebanese club owners. <laughs> Yay. He was pretty off base. I was, I was howling. I was yeah, pretty I impressed. That, that was the first time I went to a comedy show in a like, long time. And the last time I was real drunk. Right. And it's, yeah. It's, <laughs> and that's the only two times I've ever gone to see live comedy. But I went and I was fucking howling. I'll go back for sure. Howling. Like right I was on. busting a gut. And that was Buddy's whole thing. Like, he didn't really have a shtick other than picking a few people in the audience and just ripping them to pieces. Really? That was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that's what he just thinks about all day long then, right? He just picks people apart in his head. It can't be a very healthy way to live. He's going around there. Yeah, fuck. (laughs) This is who he's always on. So, uh, yeah, we want to welcome everybody to the show. And uh, for the new listeners, hey, how's it going? And we usually... Hey, how's it going? We usually ramble (laughs) ramble on ourselves for a little bit, but you can check the show notes out for when the interview starts if you want to skip all this 
this lazy ramblings. And uh, we have a guest on usually every week. And I wanted to say thanks uh, to some of our, our listeners. I got some emails here and stuff because uh, we do like to get participation from, from them and read stories from them. And, and uh, yeah, some of them give me. You don't say ham, you say spam. That's the spam gram jingle. <laughs> so, yeah, send them to my email. It's G-R-A-H-A-M at gramerica.com. Yep. And I got a few here. What sort? Just th- like thanks for people like just sending stuff in for us. So uh, okay. I got What's got, the right jingle? Yeah, what's the right jingle? So I got an email here from Marcus, and uh, he says, My hat is off to you and Darren for a great podcast. Since I listened to all the episodes, some interesting ones twice and thrice, I looked around for some new podcasts to fill the gap while you were recording. I stumbled upon a show called Wild Playground. Hosted by a female shaman. I really think you'd like the show and her as a listener. I would love an interview of her by you. Just a suggestion. Listen to just four episodes yet, but it's really promising. And opened. And he says, all is, lo- all is love, even in Berlin. That's from Marcus. And then he emailed back, uh, actually suggesting uh, he was um, offering his experience in design and graphics and stuff like that for posters or flyers and shirts. We could always use T-shirts. Yeah, I was going to actually email him back and say that if he wants to to, uh, to make up a T-shirt or something. I mean, we don't have you know, money to pay people to do that, but if they want to help out. Actually, uh... Barely got enough money to pay for the heat. Napoleon, <laughs> Napoleon de whom, he, uh, he did our Sasquatch T-shirts. Yeah, and actually, did you ever text him? No, I didn't tell actually. him that you're going to be in touch with him for the upcoming shows, or should I just do that? Uh, I was, uh, I'll do it. Okay. Yeah. Is it going to get done? Because this show has come out in like three days and he probably doesn't know who's next. <laughs> he does our, our our episode artwork as well each week. Thanks, this week thanks I just had to whip something up. I used the book cover because yeah, I, that's good. I was editing already by the time I realized it's like I can't ask him to pull But can he do a back, can he do like a back thing? We can he switch could the if art you tell up. him. Okay, Nap, do the angel artwork and we'll switch it up for you in the last episode. What? I was kind of looking forward to see what... Napoleon would do for the angel art. Well, fucking text him then. Okay. Almond eating. Oh, I don't know why I didn't use almond eater for the intro. <clears throat> so thanks. And then uh, actually somebody else, uh, Donna emailed us in um, suggesting, what did, what did she say here? She says uh, she can donate time. She can do design, marketing, and promotional, promotional stuff like videos, social banners or whatever. What's a social banner? I don't know. Hmm. And she develops apps as well. So Darren's supposed I to think get that's in, like in touch banner. with her to help. I think that's the banner. Like, oh, know, like, like a thing. website banner. We like. definitely could use an app since the Libsyn people have been apparently emailing you and you haven't been fucking oh. responding. Because <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, Rob, these fucking guys, I've emailed them like fucking 10, to- ten times. In the last month, and no one's even responded to me. And today, finally, he's like, we've responded. He's like, they say they've been responding. I'll check my emails. I don't you think need I more info. They've asked you for more information. <laughs> so the Grammaric app is shelved because Graham can't check his email. I do check my email. This isn't first in, first out. I do go through all of them. Do you? Yeah. Not your player coach. Yeah, I do. Of course. So anyways, um, Jody sent one in and he sent us some, uh, a donation, 70 bucks, uh, us actually, I sent him off a couple shirts 
Oh, yeah. Did he get the shirts? Yeah, yeah. He got them. And he says, as a side note, I just finished reading Olaf Stapledon's 1937 book entitled Star Maker. So he actually ordered one of those for the studio for us. And we have it right here. Um, we have what right here? He says, I think oh, you would, f- yeah, yeah, I think you would find it rather awesome and beautiful. Um, what does he say? That way, if you don't like the book, I'm not on the hook for being an asshole. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Jody. Anyways, I downloaded the audio book and it's narrated by this guy with an awesome Morgan British. Freeman? No. But like, this guy with an awesome, awesome. Dave Attenborough? <clears throat> kind of like Dave Attenborough. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Is that it's, racist? It's really, No. It's really good. It's like this meditative sci-fi journey through different worlds. And it's written in 1937. And you'd be amazed at how, when he talks about these other so-called advanced civilizations, how much it mirrors like what we're going through right now. It's, Mm. it's, yeah, it's really cool. So I recommend that. Should I put a little note in the show notes? A little link in the show notes? Nope. A little note in there. A little show note note. (laughs) A little show notes. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody does have to do it. Someone also has to... Do the editing? Yes. Okay, I got another one. Thanks to uh, to Yoni Rutsalainen from Finland. Yoni Rutsalainen. He says, hi, Darren. Great show. Been listening for some months hey, now. no problem. And I can't tell you <laughs> how many times you guys have made my day. Keep up the good work. I'd love one of those Take the Shot shirts if you still have them. So I sent one off to Finland. First shirt to Finland. So if It's going to be a couple weeks, though. You live in a country that we haven't sent a shirt yet. By all means, we could have our first Australia. I did get a big donation from Australia today, a shirt qualifying donation. But I don't know if you've got the email yet. Yeah, I got it. I just haven't. Uh, that won't be a part of today's episode. I'll save it unless you want me to read it. I haven't even proofed it or anything. I don't think you're thinking of the right one. Is it? We shouldn't say any last names. <laughs> Oh, this guy's from Japan. We got an email from Japan as well. Was it Matthew? I didn't. So no, I don't get. I didn't get one from Matthew. So oh, he didn't say anything in the email. So if you want a shirt, Matthew, just spam gram. Yeah. What's Thanks. those letter from Japan say? Is it a synchro? Yeah, from George George C. I haven't read it yet, though. You want me just to do it this week? <laughs> I'm a rambling gram with synchronicities all over the web. And Darren is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet. Oh boy. Okay, let's see. I haven't even read this. This is, uh, this just came in like minutes ago. Hey, George. Thanks for the email. He says, hey guys, been listening is to you guys. Is that a synchronicity? No. Okay. I've been listening to you guys for a while now. Love the show and love the feel of it. You guys remind me of some of my friends when they get together about and BS about stuff while they're high, LOL. Well, I don't partake in any of that, just so people know. Although I, I get, apparently I still sound like Bob or Doug or what's the other guy? Cheech and Chong. Yeah, Chong. <clears throat> I don't know how I get away from that. Sometimes I blow it in your face. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to share a synchronicity I just experienced. <laughs> It isn't huge, but was absolutely obvious. I love listening to Binaural Beats or the Robert Monroe Gateway Experience CDs as I go to sleep. And I've been looking for some headphones that I could wear at night without having the problem of rolling over and having my earbuds choking me out while I sleep. 
I found a possibility on Amazon, the sleep phones. And if they find you like that, they're not going to think you were listening to a Monroe Institute. Oh, right. <laughs> like all choked up. Yeah. yeah. Choked out with your iPhone. I want to listen to uh, the Monroe Institute stuff in the, in the float tank. We're going to do that. We're doing an episode with those guys and I'm going to choose some shamanic journey. I listened to really the cool, like, Institute on music. all sorts of mushrooms. You did actually, yeah. yeah. How was that? That's an episode. <laughs> That's in a previous episode. So anyways, he said he ordered a pair three days ago for me and my wife to try it out. These headphones are made in such a way that speakers are flat and contained within a soft headband. They seem like just the thing I was looking for. Well, I subscribe to the quarterly box company to receive a curated box every three months from people like Tim Ferriss, Dave Asprey, Bill Nye, and others. I received my quarterly box yesterday, and I found that they had included the exact set of headphones for the exact purpose I was looking for. It looks like I was meant to have these headphones. Thanks for doing all you do, guys, and uh, that you are appreciated for it, and know that you are appreciated for it. He's listening from Japan, George C. Konnichiwa. He says, sending this in <laughs> conjunction with another donation to help keep you warm in the igloo. Is and that it, George? It is cold. We're not just joking around about that. We do have a couple of heaters going. Thanks, George. It is cold. We do have the heater going. You might hear the heater sometimes. It's maybe, fucking freezing. Maybe Bill Nye sent him those headphones to keep warm. Or to go. keep, uh, well, that was, I was going to say about global warming, but. I wonder if that's more of a manifestation than a synchronicity. You think so? Either way, since it came with a donation, I'll give it an 8.5. <laughs> oh, that's, what, that's what's influencing your scores. So if people want high scores, they just donate. the wheels. So I got another thanks. This is from Paul. Paul K. Paul K. Actually, Paul N. K is silent. <laughs> I think... So he says, I just want to let you know that I really enjoy Grimerica. It was you and Darren that put me on to No Agenda. And thank you for that. No Agenda is the only show that goes almost... We hit him in the mouth. Yeah, we hit him in the mouth. Goes, this only show that goes almost completely political but doesn't piss me off. I totally know what he means. I find their views are very similar to mine and it's great to have smart people deconstructing the bullshit in the mainstream media. And then he goes on to talk about some of his other favorite podcasts, which are actually, it's pretty much, he's pretty much reading off my podcast playlist. Um, and then he says, anyways, after listening to podcasts for four years, I can tell you that you guys do a podcast right. That is why when I realized I had money on my PayPal, I donated 20 back in September. I'm a broke student in the last year of university, which is why I can't support you as much as I'd like, but I will be sending in another $25 for a shirt soon. So thanks, Paul. And don't stress about, about yeah, donating. Don't like, stress. You can't afford it, man. Pat some people on the back. Yeah, yeah. Tell some friends. Tell some friends about this show. So anyways, he goes on. He, he goes on to say... I digress. I want to say about global warming that I'm in my last year of earth sciences and I'm at least three... No, what does he say? And at least three of my professors are so-called climate deniers. Climate deniers. Can you imagine... Don't they come up with that mean like climate deniers like who's ever denying climate exists you have denied Anyways, it on this show no man made global warming maybe that's different this is this is there's even a class about climate change that goes back through time showing co2 is a fairly weak greenhouse gas 
and any warming we could experience will likely be beneficial. Any sea level rise will be outweighed by vast amounts of farmland opening up. Don't believe the bullshit about hurricanes and droughts being caused by atmospheric CO2 going from 0.03 to 0.04%. It's all political and not scientific. I also work in the environmental consulting industry, and CO2 is really not a concern, or nor should it be, as there are far less things, in, uh, worse things in the air other than CO2 that these warming alarmists should be more concerned about. Things like NOx, what's that again? Nitri- nitri- nitrous, oxide. nitrous oxide. And just particulate matter in general. Just Break thought- dust. Oh, yeah. Just thought you guys were a little iffy on the whole topic, so I can confirm that Randall Carlson is on the money when it comes to carbon dioxide and global warming. Such there is a connection... Oh, she says, sure, there's a connection, but the intensity has been blown way out of proportion. Cheers, Paul. So thanks for the email. I I had the I emailed him back, and I want to apologize for my rant back, Paul. What were you a deny? You're a denier. No, I was just. I'm a denier. I was. I just finished listening to No Agenda actually, who was talking about the thirty-seven thousand people at the summit. You know, all bought in, fully bought into the to the global warming thing. So I kind of ranted back. No, I I, uh, I think we have a similar take to that. Pretty much. Thanks for the affirmation, though. Ooh, Earth Sciences. Oh, we should have him on when he graduates. Mm-hmm. Then he can be like our expert. Our geoengineering expert? Our geoengineering. Wait a second. <laughs> you tricked me. <laughs> <laughs> we got to do a show on geoengineering. And chemtrails, we really do. If people, if people, I don't know, it's going to be tricky, but we should do one. It's it's important. It's important to you. Something's going on. If it's important to you, it's important to me. Oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> what uh, is that? All you got? No, I got one from uh, Aaron too. Trip, but this is different. It's kind of Jingle. a lucid dream. Yes. <clears throat> This one kind of reminds me of you, Darren, because I think you'll, 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 no, no, you'll get the gist of this. He says, hello, great America. How do I begin? It's like, I forget. It's like, I forgot how to lucid dream or did I several weeks ago, I had an extremely frightening lucid dream experience. I found myself in the lucid dream experience and somehow I remembered to ask the dream consciousness, what was the message it had for me? I do not remember any part of the dream prior to the question being asked. Once I asked, I was pulled out of the movie-like lucid dream experience and found myself standing in a room with other beings that looked like people. I had asked them, what is this? It was explained that each of us is like a cache of information that they use to gain more understanding of their universe. To them, we are like data, like a computer simulation. I asked if they were not human, why did they look human? They indicated to me that my experience chooses what they look like. They asked me if I really wanted to see what they look like, how they see themselves. I reconsidered and said, no, I do not need or want to see them, how they see themselves. It was time for me to return. I was reinserted to the movie like a dream state, still lucid, sort of. I was being chased. 
In the movie Dream State, I knew I was dreaming about being chased, and so I would change my environment to avoid capture, creating a cave to hide in or a tunnel to duck through there, knowing I had to wake up. I awoke into sleep paralysis and terror from the chase. I was lying in the hotel bed, unable to move. I think I screamed. Hovering over me were one or two humanoid sort of silhouettes, like white shadows with diffuse outlines and slightly elongated heads, featureless other than their shadow-like appearance. They didn't fit in time. I think, it, I think as their forms sort of flickered, layering on top of one another as they seemed like they were forcing me back into my body. It's fucked up, it's I know. Police. <laughs> it's fucked. It's fucked up, I know. Rational thoughts lead me to wonder if my mind is coming to grips with ideas like the Matrix reality. While the white shadows forcing me back to my body, dream bouncers removing me from the lucid dream form. I don't know. Reality and non-local reality are strange places. I haven't had a lucid dream since then. It's fucked up being ban hammered from the lucid dream state. And, and then he says, Graham, the following need not be read on the air. If you want to, cool as well. It's just a note for you guys in the igloo. And he's, and he's uh, complaining about PayPal. He says his account's all fucked up. So we will, uh, yeah, we're going to try and find some alternate solutions besides PayPal, just so you know. But yeah, you that's uh, Just send your cash. <laughs> that's, a, that's a crazy experience. I almost feel like he, like he got too close or something. Like he's in that fucking other dimension, that lucid dream, and he's like asking the right questions. You think? And they, they kind of got wind of, oh my God, this guy's getting close. Like we're actually spilling the beans here. The dream police. <laughs> dream, um, dream bouncers. I like that. Yeah. I don't know what else that could be. Sounds like DMT release. Re yeah. Don't you have a little uh, experience to share with us one day? No. No? Not yet. <laughs> not yet can we, can you commit to a date I haven't done it I know no can't commit okay we'll leave it at that we'll leave it at that got anything else no man mofo no that's, that's all good yeah. that's good though some people answered the spam call yeah some people answered the support call I still have the UFO quote too but we can uh... forego that yeah Okay. No, what we should do Let's it. just cut it no, out. No, we should do it. Let's just cut it out of the show altogether. No. I'll keep it small. Let's hear it. Uh, the light would throb. Not the first time he said that. <laughs> the light would throb with an increased intensity prior to each change of color and hover in the sky for some time and then dart and cover large distances, doing a number of right-angle turns at high speed. That was from Senior Constable Andrew Lurs, the Gladstone Southern Australia, May 22nd at 1996. That reminds me, did you get the email from Nestor? He sent the video. He yeah. took the video on New Year's in Salt Lake City. He's seen three orbs in three years now, all in the winter months. He went back from show one and just got to the Orange Orb episode. Yeah. What's that? He's still got like another 60 to go. Yeah. Thanks for listening to all those episodes. I wonder how long it'll take him to figure out that we read his email. <laughs> could be, it could be months. 
That's true, eh? He'll be listening to our, us reading this email in like spring. Right? Yeah, probably. Winter will be over. We won't be cold anymore. Of course, uh, thanks for the support, Nestor. And uh, he did post the YouTube link. It's in the comment. What yeah, doing? that's the video right there. Sorry there go. that. Thanks. Thanks for wow, that. Wow, it looks pretty. So we'll put that link for the video in the show notes. So you guys can check that out. Uh, big thanks to Nestor. Uh, I think we're going to jump into our chat with uh, Frederick. Oh, right. Yeah, we should have mentioned that at the beginning. Frederick from uh, Twitter. Fringe Media. Fringe Media Group. Yeah, very interesting. And Bigfoot Stacy Brown. Yeah. I'd still like to know his thoughts on shooting Bigfoot. Yeah, we should have Not him back on Monday. We'll have him back on Monday. Absolutely. So they were down doing their report in uh, Mexico for their new um, internet. Video? Internet show. Um, which seems like it's got some cool topics. So, yeah, very cool. Fortress um, America. Looking forward to that. The first one's Fortress America, about how wide open the borders really are. And uh, we're going to jump in with Frederick here now, play a bit of that. Okay, guys, we got uh, Friedrich Dean. He's going to touch in with us tonight about a little project he's been working on, and he's uh, been listening to the show for a while. Uh, so we figured we'd have him on for a few minutes to chat about it. Otherwise known as Fringe Media, right? Yeah, that's correct. It's uh, Fringe Media Group. Yeah, thanks for all the Twitter uh, Twitter shout-outs and shit. Oh, yeah, I've been a fan of your show for uh, quite a while, and uh, I, I appreciate the invite, and... Uh, looking forward uh, to talking to you guys yeah no problem so what what's going on here you guys have this project called fortress america and it's uh it's gonna be released coming up in december yeah well, should we fortress- be scared <laughs> yeah possibly <laughs> fortress-, fortress america is is uh one story of uh a season's worth of material that we've been working on and uh, we we decided that that was our most powerful story, so we wanted to start with that. It, it actually uh, started out as two separate stories: one on uh, immigration, because that's you know such a, a hot topic at the moment. I was in uh, Hanover, Germany, four months ago, right when all of this was really kicking off, and there was a lot of uh, tension in the city. That's the best way I could describe it about. Uh, what's going on there in terms of uh, immigration. And the other uh, story was, this is one I've been interested in in many years, for for many years. It's about the uh, Soviet, the missing Soviet nuclear suitcase bombs. Hmm. And that's, uh, that story's been around for a long time. It hasn't got that much attention, but there's a lot there. And uh, what we, uh, what started out as two stories actually became one and we we brought the two subjects together um one is the the story of uh, alexei uh Oblikov, who was a uh, russian nuclear scientist in the during the soviet union and uh after the fall of the soviet union in 1989 he ended up going to work for boris yeltsin as part of the uh as a as a nuclear advisor to the kremlin and he's after the dust had settled and things had calmed down to a little bit of normalcy. He uh, started to try to locate 
where these 160 plus some suitcase bombs were in uh, in the Soviet Union because some of these uh, devices had gone dark for that for a period of time <clears throat> excuse me and uh he could only uh locate a, a, a less than half of them so what he claimed was that there's 84 of these uh nuclear suitcase bombs that are missing and they range in yield from 1 to 6 kilotons Ouch. And, yeah, it's pretty significant. And uh, his story was backed up independently by a uh, a uh, ex uh, Secret Service gentleman, KGB uh, agent from the Soviet Union, who basically told the same story independently. That, uh, but the thing that uh, made Yablokov. Uh, um, Interesting is that he filed a report to the Yeltsin government and the uh, then Russian military, and uh, he was immediately fired. And uh, then he moved to a town in Siberia where he was elected mayor, and he ne- and he never spoke or wrote about the uh, the Russian nuclear suitcase bombs again. Hmm. So the story's been out there for a, quite a long time that there are approximately eighty four of these devices unaccounted for. So, so your project is a video. Is a video. At first, I thought it was uh, like a written or spoken thing. But is it coming out as a video or? Yeah, that's it's video. It's all shot uh, on location in uh, Manhattan, different locations in Manhattan, uh, Times Square being one of them. And the uh, locations that we shot this past weekend were in uh, Texas, right on the Mexican border. Wow! So, so to tease people, it's 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 in those locations, and it's about a, a suitcase bomb and immigration. Yeah. <laughs> so you can <laughs> figure fill out in the blanks. Fill there. in the blanks. <laughs> Two hot topics right now as well. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, I I got the gist that that you that you recognize there's this big problem because no matter how much the U S is going to spend on security, no matter how much fear there is out there, that there's no way to, to lock it down completely. Right. Yeah, that's correct. You know, the, the department of Homeland security, is this massive security apparatus with 80 plus billion dollar a year budget and the U uh, S customs and border patrol falls under the Department of Homeland Security and their budget alone is uh in the 30 of billions of dollars wow. every yeah and then can you and give then, us some can you give us some of the numbers of the employees as well cuz that blows me away when you talk about how many people actually work for these organizations yeah i i, I wrote that when i wrote the copy i did the research of that i don't have the the data at in my with me at the moment but what it works out to be there's a ridiculous number of uh, border patrol agents and Homeland Security agents representative of every single uh, person that walks across the border every day. And in 2014, I, I know you saw, saw it in the news, there were approximately 200 to 240,000 people walked across the border in 2014. The vast majority of those were children. And uh, from all over uh, Mexico and Central America, they were under the belief that uh, children unaccompanied by their parents would be given preferential treatment by uh, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. 
So they they simply walked across the border. They walked across the Rio Bravo or swam across the Rio Bravo. It's very shallow in some places, the Rio Grande or uh, up in the desert regions, the Sonora Desert. They uh, walked across the border there. Those areas are essentially wide open. There's nobody there. So do you have an opinion opinion on it either way, how it should go? Like, or, or I mean, because I don't really have, I don't know what you, Darren, but I don't really have any opinion or answers on all this stuff. It's pretty complex, so, but I don't live down there either. No, not, we, we don't have any opinion on it at all. We're just reporting what we see, and we wanted to see it firsthand, so the only way to do that is, is to go there, so. And did you have uh, any hassles at all just by being around the border? Zero. Huh. There's, uh, in the area that we're in, we, we sort of probed the border in several different places. And uh, there are neighborhoods that go right up to the border, literally right on the river. And they're 100 yards away from Mexico, Some in some cases 40 yards away. And there was a, a pretty heavy border patrol presence in those areas, but everywhere else, it's just out in the uh, in the open mesquite desert and in the wilderness, so to speak. There's there's nothing out there. That's why Donald wants his wall. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that, <laughs> but uh, you know that combined with uh, the uh, situation in Europe, and then uh, this other story that we've kind of had in the back of our minds for a while. What's, got rolled into one and became Fortress America. What uh, What do you guys have coming out? And that's going to launch around December 18th? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what's next? And then the next one we have ready, this one is completed. We did a story on the Georgia Guidestones. I don't know if you guys are familiar. I've heard about it, but I've kind of resisted learning too, more about it. So I'll definitely, I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, the, the Georgia Guidestones is an interesting uh, phenomenon. Um, a small town in uh, very rural Georgia called Elbert- Elberton, Georgia. A guy shows up in the uh, late 80, uh, late uh, 70s, early 80s, and he commissions a monument. It's a massive uh, monument. And uh, he pays for the monument in full, and then he leaves, and nobody ever sees him again. And uh, the monument is full of these astrological features, um, sites and uh, holes that line up to the sun and the moon and different different astrological features. So the location of the monument was very specific in order for these astrological uh, features to line up with the celestial bodies. It had to be in that very specific spot. Nobody knows um, who owns the land, whether it's the uh, city of Elberton or the town of Elberton or the, the farm that it used to belong to, the Mullinex farm. And uh, that's unclear. The ownership is they do know that once the monument was assembled and it took some time, it took about a year, um, about depending on who you ask, between 40 and 100 people showed up for the unveiling of the monument. They uh, they spent a very short time there. Nobody knows who they were. There were not local people. They weren't definitely not from Elberton County. Um, they christened the monument, and then everybody split, and nobody ever saw them again. Hmm. And uh, there's written in six languages. There are uh, some very specific things uh, carved into the 
into the guidestones. The first one is that uh, the population of the earth should be reduced to 500 million. Oh, right. That's kind of where one of the places that comes from. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's so, a manageable level of exactly. people. Exactly. Yeah. So we went out and it was, it was a great trip. Uh, we, we drove out there. We had no copy written. Weren't sure what we were going to do when we got there. And we ended up uh, meeting some young kids there at the monument. And there were a rap group called Only Money Talks. <laughs> so we got these kids rapping, uh, uh, doing a rap for us in front of the Georgia Guidestones called Only Money Talks at 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, so that, that was, you never know what you're going to run into when you go out to these places. What else is inscribed on there? Um, I don't have it written in front of me right now, but it's, you, there's a Wikipedia page on it that lists all the, the 10 different line items. I just remember the, uh, the first one, which was uh, talking about the world population. And then what else you got coming up? You mentioned a couple other things as well. Yeah, we did uh, a story on the, uh, the Florida militia. And uh, we're working on uh, doing a story about the Southern uh, Ku Klux Klan, which is a little scary because the, these connections that we have and that have, have developed are a little bit sketchy. And we're not exactly sure that the people we're talking to actually have permission to bring us in to, to shoot and do a story. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see how, how that one shakes out. Um, we did a, a, a story on uh, the drug Molly, and that one's called Go Ask Molly, and uh, the ties between Molly and ecstasy uh, and how that has kind of taken over the southern states. Wow, the ties between Molly and ecstasy, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually being marketed as a, an ecstasy-type drug, but uh, it's it's nowhere even close to uh, ecstasy chemically. And that's the, the kind of the story that we're trying to tell with that. Oh, that'll be interesting. The, the, the chemicals in Molly are, uh, there's some pretty bad things in there. Yeah. And you don't know, you know, whenever you buy it, you, you're never going to know exactly what's in it. So we look at uh, where these chemicals come from and what they are and, and what they can potentially do to people. Wow, man. It sounds like you're really onto some interesting stuff here. We try to keep it as interesting and as eclectic as, as possible. Uh, my partner, his name is uh, Stacy Brown Jr. And if you're a, a Bigfooter, you may recognize uh, Stacy from uh, Spike TV's uh, Bigfoot Bounty. Oh, I don't know if yeah. Dave will, but is he, is he a shooter? Would he shoot Bigfoot? Oh, yeah, he would definitely shoot Bigfoot. Oh, yeah, Stacy. <laughs> but doesn't have a chance in his neighborhood. We're not having him on then. No shooters. <laughs> no shooters. So, so speaking of the show and shit, do you do you have any suggestions for topics or anybody you'd like us to have on any any time? On on your show, yeah. Any favorite um, uh, people you haven't heard or anything? I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. <laughs> do you have any anybody uh, you would recommend that we have on the show that you, oh, that be, you, that have you would, yeah that you would be interested in hearing? Um. Oh, definitely. Uh, Anytime that uh, you can speak to Randall Carlson is always, uh, I really enjoy listening to uh, his interviews and 
That would probably just just him at the moment, yeah. Okay. Randall is a fan favorite. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's on to something. Yeah. I really like uh, Abby Martin too. Oh, if, I've been trying to get all of her actually. Yeah. She's one that that uh, wants would like to talk about uh, you know like the our debt based economy and stuff like that, right? For some reason, I don't mm-hmm. find like there's a lot of people that that discuss that so openly. So yeah, I want to get into that yeah. for sure. That's definitely a good topic. I mean, I think a lot of people don't understand it. Yeah. You know, most people are still under the impression that the Federal Reserve is federal. Yeah, and, and that it has to be that way. Like, banking has to make the money they're making off of our interest, you know? hmm Yeah. $35 billion last year the Canadian banks made. Oh, they raked it in last yeah. year, eh? <laughs> Just fucking hosing us. And raking up uh, fees and... Yeah. Oh, making money out of nothing and charging us for it. Those bastards. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. Thanks a lot for coming on, Friedrich. And we uh, we wish you the best of luck with the show. And we will uh, we'll pop this out in our in our episode next week, and we'll use it to. Uh, what's the URL? Where can people track you down? And to what's your Twitter, your Facebook, all that fun stuff? It's a Fringe Media Group. Okay. And uh, just to, uh, um, I just want to make, you know, Stacy Brown is my partner and uh, we started this together. I uh, met Stacy about a year and a half ago and kind of pitched this idea to him and, and he, he liked it. And that's what we've been doing for quite a while now. Great. Well, yeah, send us, send us a link and let us know when you, when you go, uh, when you go live or whatever, when you release it and we'll, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll link to it. Okay, great. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, thanks a lot, Frederick, and uh, sorry for uh, keeping you up so late. Uh, no problem. All right, buddy, take care. You guys take care. Talk to you. Okay, bye. Bye. Big thanks to Frederick for, for coming on the show. Um, so, yeah, check out Fringe Media. We'll, uh, we'll post and tweet that and all that when it goes live. And uh, I think that's about it, hey, buddy? Yeah, I think so. Just, uh, you know, help out the show uh, in many, oh, yeah. many different ways. You can. Yeah, grabamerica.ca slash support. Check out all the different ways. Of course, our monthly subscribers are, are, are uh, help out the most, help us pay the bills, keep the lights on, keep the heat flowing, internet. P.O. Box. P.O. Box. <laughs> all that little stuff Never that adds up. Uh, so, yeah, sign up for a monthly, anywhere from a dollar to 30. I think our highest is we got a couple guys at the. Eleven, eleven. Yeah, that's cool. Thanks for donating. It yeah. really does help out with the expenses. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, by all means, check out that if you can't afford to do a monthly. There's all sorts of one times. Maybe you get a tax return or a Christmas bonus. Um, shoot a couple bucks our way um, if you can't afford that. Of course, we always appreciate reviews, whether they be Stitcher, iTunes, any place else you can review or share the show. All means do that. Uh, spam Graham with your synchronicities or your other stories. Graham at grammarica.com. Uh, those help. And of course, the best way to help the show is to tell people about the show. The easiest way to do that is to sign them up for the newsletter. Grammarica.ca slash news comes with the box. You can just sit there all day and type in email addresses. And uh, yeah, and then they'll start getting the the newsletter and then you've done your part without it they won't even know you did it <laughs> anonymous spreading the word 
Uh, of course, big thanks to Justin for that. He's a monthly subscriber and he does the newsletter. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. Big thanks to Stanton Friedman for coming on too. It's, it's, uh, it's about time we had him on. Yeah. So enjoy the chat with Stanton and we will see you in the outro. So tonight in the Grimerica show, it's a special night. We have Darren Grimes here as usual and James Nation, who's in the studio, special guest host tonight. And he chose to have Stanton Friedman on. So luckily we've, uh, we've waited a couple of years before we had Stan on. And for anybody that's a little bit interested in UFOs, either a skeptical or sort of on the more believer side, would, would have heard of Stan. He's a nuclear physicist. He's one... A lifetime UFO uh, achievement award in Leeds, England. He's appeared at the UN twice. He's written congressional testimony. He's spoken at more MUFON conferences than any. He's written lots of books, and he's kind of, we were joking around in the studio earlier, he's like the godfather of ufology. So he's a fellow Canadian as well, and we're so happy to have you here. Stan, thanks for taking the time. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm a dual citizen. I can complain about both governments, the U.S. and Canada. <laughs> Legally. But you live. You still live in Canada, right? Oh, yes. Yes. Well, what do you mean still? I've only lived here for 35 years. So you, That's you, been half my life. Have you ever I've thought only about... lived here for 34 years. <laughs> <laughs> have you thought about moving to the south at all? Well, I lived. I moved here from California. What, why would I want to move back? <laughs> well, because it's pretty cold where you are, isn't it? <laughs> well, hey, I'm a sturdy guy. I grew up in New Jersey. It can handle anything. But uh, <laughs> you know, we—I uh, I had a call, call from a friend in California. What are you doing back there, Stan? I'm in Fredericton, New Brunswick. For anybody who worries about such things, and uh, what are you doing back there? Don't you miss California? And I said, well, yeah, California had great climate, and Mother Nature was very generous. There's Yosemite and the ocean and all that sort of stuff. And it did take me a while to get used to not having earthquakes and drive-by shooting and miserable traffic and terrible smog. But you know what? I learned to do without those things. <laughs> nice. Don't have to fear. And you're in, uh, you know, the polite country, so... Yeah, well, Fredericton is a great place to raise a family. Home of the University of New Brunswick, which is the oldest English language university in Canada, mind you. Uh, so I, I've never regretted the move. I, I have somebody shovel my driveway, of course. <laughs> so, so we were we were debating here before we called you on on whether to get you to talk about. Uh, the nuclear stuff a little bit no 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 a little bit about the history of how you got into ufology and because we 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 thought well we don't have 
you know, we have a lot of listeners that are interested in UFOs, but we also have a potential to reach people that uh, would probably, you know, that you could really sort of uh, maybe change their mind or get them to think a little deeper on the subject. So we probably should just for, you know, maybe like the Reader's Digest version of how you got started into, into oh, UFOs. Yeah. It's easy enough. I was a young nuclear physicist, 24, working for General Electric Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department in Cincinnati, Ohio, in 1958. And I'm a cheapskate. I was ordering books from a mail-order book place, and I needed one more book so I wouldn't have to pay shipping. And there was the report on unidentified flying objects by Air Force Captain Edward Ruppelt. He had headed Project Blue Book back in the early 50s. This was in 1958, and the book was marked down hardcover, 295 to a buck. Shipping would have been a buck. It was going to be free, <laughs> and so I ordered it. I thought, what the heck? Air Force was co-sponsor of our little aircraft nuclear propulsion program. I say little. In 1958, we spent uh, 100 million dollars. We employed 3,500 people, of whom 1,100 were engineers and scientists. And I mention this uh, not to brag. I mean, the program got canceled, of course, as everything else I worked on. <laughs> but uh, there are an awful lot of people who don't seem to understand that there's an awful lot of important research and development and expensive research and development that goes on in industry and in the national laboratories and outside of academia. Uh, and that you, you got to learn, you got to study the evidence, and most of it is not published in scientific journals, peer-reviewed scientific journals. People seem to think that's where all research gets published. It isn't. Hmm. And so the program was big. It was exciting. It was fun. Uh, it got canceled. Okay. But uh, uh, I got the book. I read it. I was not totally convinced, but I was very intrigued as it turned out. And I read 10 more books in the next year after that. I moved to California. And uh, it turns out it was a very lucky first book to read because several of the ones I read after that, if I'd read them first, I'd have never read another one. Right, right. <laughs> and so uh, I, I was reading all these books, and then I made an incredible discovery, totally unexpectedly, at the University of California Berkeley Library. And I found a copy of the largest study ever done on flying saucers for the government, Air Force, as a matter of fact, Project Blue Book Special Report Number 14. And it was had data on 3,201 sightings. The work was done at Battelle Memorial Institute, which is a major research development firm. It was under Air Force contract. But what really got to me, besides the more than 200 charts, tables, graphs, and maps, I mean, I was in data heaven. But what really got to me is the guy who put it together, uh, Dr. Leon Davidson, uh, had compiled this because uh, he got a copy. When it came out, they put out a press release, but they didn't release the report. He managed to get a copy. And in the press release, I was shocked to see the Secretary of the Air Force, no less, lying through his teeth. In the press release, it said, on the basis of this study, we believe that no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. <coughs> that sounds very straightforward. It's a total lie. 
I had to report. I was looking at the charts and tables and stuff. The unknowns weren't 3%. They were 21.5%. And they were completely separate from the 9.3% of the cases for which there was insufficient information. So that part of the statement wasn't true. They did a quality evaluation. The better the quality of the sighting, the more likely to be unexplainable. They asked an obvious question. Okay, we got all these reports. Is there really any difference between the unknowns and the knowns? Maybe we just missed the boat. They did. It's called a chi-square statistical analysis. Don't worry about the details. On the basis of six different characteristics, are the unknowns different from the knowns? The answer is yes. The probability that the two groups are the same is less than 1%. So I got mad. I wanted to get to the bottom of this. I don't like being lied to. I mean, I worked under security. Sure, sometimes you got to, how shall I put it, uh, tiptoe around the truth. <laughs> That's one way to put it. But a flat-out lie like that, that really made me angry. And so I joined APRO and NICAP, the two big groups. Don't exist anymore. I'm still around. Uh, I did a lot of reading, a lot of talking. I didn't didn't really get my first lecture until 1967, uh, and that was only by accident. Uh, you know, I I stuck my neck out. I, Frank Edwards, I don't know if you've heard of him. He wrote a book, Flying Saucer: Serious Business. He was a journalist, mm -hmm. knew everybody. He was on the board at NICAP, and uh, this is in the 60s, and. He sent me a copy of the book because I moved to uh, Indianapolis to work for General Motors on a nuclear project. That also got canceled, but what the heck. Uh, Allison Division in Indianapolis. And I called Frank and I said, I want to go public, Frank. You know everybody. Give me some names because I just moved to Pittsburgh for, to work for Westinghouse Astronuclear Lab on a nuclear rocket program. And believe it or not. We actually tested a nuclear rocket engine. That was exciting. Of course, they canceled the program right afterward, but that's the way things go. Anyway, Frank gave me some names. I'd love the name of the first program to have me on. Contact! <laughs> and it was strictly by luck. I had called them. I talked to the producer. Don't call us. We'll call you. I thought being a Westinghouse nuclear physicist in Pittsburgh, which is a Westinghouse town, would count for something. It didn't. And then I got less than a month later, I got a call from him at 6.30. Uh, could you please do our program at 7 o'clock? I live near the station, fortunately. And I've always wondered how many people did they call before they got to me? <laughs> the bottom of the barrel. Anyway, I did the program. Uh, somebody at work at Westinghouse heard me and wanted me to talk to her book review club because they were reviewing Frank's book. That's my first lecture in somebody's living room. Hmm. And I did that program many times, uh, gave a lecture because uh, <coughs> the dean at Carnegie Tech, his wife worked at Westinghouse, and I rode to work with her one day, two days in a three-year period, but... And I said, gee, I'd like to speak at Carnegie Tech. And she says, well, why don't you talk to the dean? I said, well, I talked to Dr. So-and-so, and he wasn't interested. She said, Stan, the dean's my husband. He's heard you on the radio. Why don't you give him a call? So I did. And we booked a talk. 
was a strange conversation. It was going to be an afternoon talk, which meant I'd have to take some time off work. And his last question was, uh, how much do you want? Yeah. Well, how about $100? I figured he'd knock me down to 50 uh, he, he bought me at 100 because I knew his wife. And then he told me what he was paying the other speakers in the series. 1500 1700 1600 <laughs> Well, the talk went extremely well. He wrote the agent through whom he had booked those other speakers, and that agent booked me at the Engineering Society of Detroit for $300 in expenses. I was in the big time. And that talk was very important because this wasn't a bunch of little old ladies in tennis shoes, in other words. Uh, don't hear that expression much anymore. <laughs> but, uh, 1,008 people for dinner and a talk. They were sold out three weeks in advance, and there wasn't one negative question. Hmm. Now, I could not help but respect the audience. And I spoke to an audience in Pittsburgh, joint meeting of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and the Institute of Electric and Electronic Engineers, packed house, and they had to stop the question and answer period because so much interest. Again, no negative questions. Uh, and my boss's boss's boss was there. So I, I was... Uh, really enjoying speaking. It turns out I'm a ham. I'm a real Leo. Uh, and I was enjoying. And then uh, I asked my boss, I said, look, I, I need some guidance. I don't want to lose my job. I've got a security clearance. I don't want to lose that. I mean, I got a mortgage and a wife and kids and so forth. Uh, give me some rules of, uh, of, of the trade, so to speak. Mm -hmm. They came back to me, three rules. You can say what you please on your time. You can identify yourself as a Westinghouse nuclear physicist, but we'd like you to put a disclaimer at the beginning of the lecture. The views you're about to hear are mine and mine alone and not those of my employer. I said, fine. Now, who could ask for anything more? Well, I did ask for anything more because I got a call from a colleague at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. Hey, Stan. Uh, here you've been doing a lot of lectures. Yeah. How about speaking to our American Nuclear Society chapter here? Now I'm a member of the American Nuclear Society, so I said, sure, I'd love to. No, I mean on an expense account, Stan. Oh, I don't make those decisions. Mm. <laughs> IS management, they paid for me to go from Pittsburgh to New Mexico to give a lecture. Flying saucers are real. I... Uh, we weren't hiding it. And I gave the lecture. There were 500 people there. No negative questions. Hmm. And you've wrote, a, now, you've wrote a book about that as well, have you not? Well, I, I mentioned this in books. And uh, the, the kicker is, I, I mentioned this because there are a lot of people who think, well, nobody believes in flying saucers. They must give him a hard time. I've given over 700 lectures, and I've only had... Uh, 11 hecklers, and two of them were drunk. <laughs> and that's everywhere. I mean, I've spoken in all 50 states, all 10 provinces, and 18 other countries. And when I go to India next month, that'll be the 19th country. And you get more than 11 hecklers if you talk about sports, religion, politics. You know, that's what they tell me anyway. <laughs> so I come on very strong. And it turns out, 
I learned a couple of truths fairly early on. I started asking at the end of my lecture, uh, how many people here believe that they have seen what I would consider to be a flying saucer, having described, uh, defined my terms earlier. And I prefer the term flying saucer because all flying saucers are UFOs, very few UFOs are flying saucers. You know, all great-grandfathers are men, but not all men are great-grandfathers. <laughs> and so when I ask that question, I'll make a joke, you know, we didn't let the CIA in, stuff like that. And I'm just going to point and count. No names required. So I do that, and it shocks people because the first hands go up uh, cautiously, just barely over their head. And by the time I turn to the other side of the room, they go up vigorously because lots of people, it turns out, typically 10% of the audience believe they've seen one. Mm. But then I ask, uh, how many of you reported what you saw? 90% of the hands go down. Yeah. If there's anybody left, I'll say, uh, how many of you were in the military at the time? Still anybody left? You want to tell us about it? I don't ask for names or anything. And, uh, well, in the University of Indiana, or in uh, Indianapolis at this time, uh, I went through that, and I said, you want to tell us about it? And the guy says, oh, they took my pictures. Mm. Long silence. I said, well, uh, I'm sure the audience would like to hear the rest of the story. Uh, I'm not asking your name. You don't need to stand up. So somebody got him a microphone, and he tells about he was flying a four-engine Air Force plane across the Pacific. It, Another plane 20 miles ahead, radio saucer heading your way. They had gun cameras. They took pictures and then radioed the base to which they were going because the crew doesn't handle the film. This is intelligence material. And they landed. The film was taken. They were debriefed and told never to say anything. And I'll guarantee you 99% of the people there believed him. He just came across so well. He wasn't, wasn't looking for anything. He didn't have a book to sell. I didn't have one either at that time. <laughs> did, you, did you find but, that most of these guys were seeing saucers? Like, you know, nowadays it seems there's a lot more triangle sightings and stuff. But, you know, and I'm well, so I'm using a saucer in the generic term, you know, right. and um, clearly manufactured objects behaving in ways that the things we manufacture can't behave, right. uh, you know, and so that they don't show any license plates yeah. and stuff like that. But the ability to make right angle turns, stop, start, hover, uh, move straight up, straight down, land in the middle of nowhere in a space not much larger than themselves and take off from there and do it without noise, without visible external engines, without wings and without a tail. That's pretty special. And if we had them, we'd use them in the few wars that have gone on on this planet. Mm -hmm. I get a kick out of people telling me, oh, it was all Nazi technology. Oh, Hitler was such a nice guy that they figured out how to build saucers, but he didn't want to hurt anybody so he wouldn't use them. I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know? So have you noticed so, a difference in, uh, in, in people answering that question? Like over the years, have more people started reporting? No, it, it's typically 10%. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, what's interesting to me is the similarities between audiences, not only on that level, but what they really want to know about. They have no trouble accepting the data. I'm a data man. I present tables, charts, graphs, maps. Uh, I talk about five large-scale scientific studies. And I'm a little sneaky. I'll ask after each one, how many people here read this? 
And yeah, if I'm lucky, it's 2%. Uh, that helps keep down the noise in the audience. That is, people uh, coming at me strong who don't know anything, but uh, they don't want me to be able to say, uh, you haven't read any of those reports I talked about, have you? I had a guy uh, in Pittsburgh, a uh, Gulf Research Lab, interrupted me three times, and finally the boss man said, hey, let him finish. Tell me if I finish, and I looked to him. He says, well, I'm sure one could come to other conclusions than the ones you've come to. And I said, well... Let me see now, as I recall, you hadn't read any of those five large-scale scientific studies, had you? Well, no. Well, that's the difference between us, isn't it? I gave you my conclusion. I gave you my sources. You hadn't read any of them. I've read them all. Whose opinion's worth more? Long silence. <laughs> clearly, I clearly yours, but, Sam. What? Clearly your opinion. You had, well, you, you, you've done the yeah. most research. You're like the godfather. Well, you know, I learned a rule in the fifth grade. Uh, have facts in hand before putting mouth in gear. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a high school debater. We won a state championship one year. And uh, it, that applied there as well. And, you know, look, I figured once that uh, over the years I've ordered, uh, answered probably 60,000 questions. That's not only at lectures, but at uh, interviews like this one. And uh, classroom visits, which I do often on campuses. And people seem to have no trouble accepting the evidence that I present. The chart that shows the better the quality of the site, the more likely to be an unknown, stuff like that. Uh, what they really want to know is the why questions. You know, why would anybody come here? Why don't they land on a White House lawn? Why doesn't the government tell us what it knows? And the usual response when I give an answer, I mean, I've got to be ready to answer those questions, of course. And I do in my books. Uh, there's a whole chapter, the UFO why questions and flying saucers and science. Uh, and those, the, the usual response from the people who ask those questions, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Well, I have because I'm forced to. I mean, I, I can't say I'll get back to you tomorrow on <laughs> No, I like, I'm on the stage. I, like how I need you're, an answer now. <laughs> I'm talking to you. I can't say, oh, call me again next week. Will you? <laughs> we'll figure that one out. And the thing is that I've had to think about these questions. And I do have some advantages. One, I've worked on far-out propulsion systems. One of the loudest arguments from the nasty, noisy negativist is, you can't get here from there. It would violate the laws of physics. That's malarkey. I mean, how long does it take to go around the planet Earth? Well, it must take at least three years. That's how long it took Magellan. The space station does it in 95 minutes. The key thing about technology is progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. I worked on fission and fusion rockets. We tested we didn't just talk about these things. On the nuclear rocket program, this is back in the late 60s, mind you, Westinghouse, Aerojet General, and Los Alamos each built a separate system, very similar. Liquid hydrogen was the propellant. They were all under eight feet in diameter. Uh, power levels varied. From Westinghouse, our system operated 1,100 megawatts. And I'll relate that to something real in a minute. Uh, Aerojet, 1,000 megawatts. 
in Los Alamos, 4,400 megawatts. Now, Hoover Dam out there in Nevada produces 2,000 megawatts. And it's a big old sucker. <laughs> An eight-foot diameter rocket engine. Well, of course, our exit exhaust temperature, 40, a little over 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It was a very, these were very impressive systems. And our reward for being successful was they canceled the program. <laughs> what can I do? The second thing is that working under security. I know how security works, and it's surprising how many people don't. Uh, you know, I get people, I, I'm a big fan of certain documents about Operation Majestic 12. Most of them are phony, but I'm only interested in the real ones. And I get people tell me, oh, those guys would have told their wives what they were doing. No, they wouldn't. Yeah. I never told my wife anything classified. I'd yeah. be ridiculous to do that. Uh, secrets, well, look, Lockheed built a uh, uh, quiet airplane. Uh, and they only spent $10 billion to do it uh, in 10 years' time. Totally classified. So standing the spy satellite, the Corona spy satellite. That's the town where Roswell incident actually happened. Believe it or not, <laughs> uh, the U two, you know, was kept classified. Uh, the Russians knew about it, but they didn't want to admit that they couldn't shoot it down. We, in the United States, didn't want to admit we were flying it because we were violating international law. Somebody's airspace, we were violating. Okay, then they shot down. Uh, one of our U-2s, and we admitted reluctantly that it was a spy um, spy plane. Well, at the very time that that was going on, we were trying to build a satellite, 1960 or so, and would you believe there were 12 failures in a row in, in secret? Nobody knew about them. They weren't cheap. The 13th one worked. And it got more data about Soviet military installations than all the U-2 flights that preceded it, all in secret. Now, admittedly, finally, we said that we had done this. In 1990, 30 years later, <laughs> no, governments can't keep secrets. And I, what I show people, because I prefer, I, I can't hold it close to the phone. You still won't see it. But the NSA, for example after a legal battle and a Freedom of Information action suit and so forth, they finally released 156 top-secret Umbra UFO documents. The NSA, wow. There was a little problem. You could read one sentence per page. Everything else was whited out <laughs> because of national security. The CIA released dozens of top-secret CIA UFO documents. All blacked out. Well, you could read five words on this page, four words on that page, that sort of thing. So if anybody wants to say, prove it, that they're covering things up, I would mention those. And, you know, don't tell me you'll scrape off the white out off the uh, NSA documents because they Xerox them first, of course, and there's nothing underneath. But, uh, you know, secrecy is goes with the territory. And it shocks people when I point out that this is three years back, the Washington Post said that the total military intelligence budget for that year 
was $52.6 billion. In the That's 60s? NSA, no, CIA, no, and yeah. NRO. That's a lot of dough where I come from. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, now uh, about the propulsion system, I, I should point out that we've joined the nuclear guys in the universe. Almost all the energy in the galaxy and in the universe is produced by nuclear fusion in the stars. Uh, they're not burning gas. Our sun produces energy by nuclear fusion. And nuclear fusion, people will recognize what goes on in H-bonds. Uh, you can call it an H-bond, you can call it a fusion device, whatever. But let's look at what happened. It was first discovered, theorized, in 1938. Now, in 1944, and what are we going to do with it? We're going to build a bomb, of course. That's what we need to do. So 1944, our blockbuster bombs, new bombs, were developed for the B-29, huge airplane by that day's standard. And that bomb, a 10-ton blockbuster, would release the energy of 10 tons of dynamite. Make a big hole in the ground, boy. And we used a lot of them in 44. In 1945, we tested our first fission bomb. You know, uranium, plutonium, that sort of stuff. It released the energy, kind of hard to imagine, of 16,000 tons of TNT. They go from 10 to 16,000. That was in 45. Um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, about the same amount. In 1952, we exploded our first H-bomb fusion device. Ten million tons of TNT energy equivalent release. One lousy bomb! And I do consider nuclear weapons lousy. I mean, you know, I, I'm not proud that we have developed those, but it means we've grown in our understanding. Well... Where do you fall in on nuclear energy? What? Where do you fall in on nuclear energy? Well, I think it's it, it, it's the best way to avoid uh, greenhouse gas. But let me extend this one more step. The Russians, a few years later, tested their big one, 57 million tons of TNT energy release in <sighs> one stinking weapon. Tsar bomb or whatever they called it, right? Tsar bomb? Yeah. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. Well, they had other names for it, the big one and stuff, but the important thing is that we have demonstrated to our visitors that we're part of the nuclear energy, the nuclear world, fusion world. Mm -hmm. We can go to the stars. Now, if we want to spend the dough, we can go. That's a good... Hey, I like that. <laughs> if we want to spend the dough, we can go. Uh and I worked on a study of fusion propulsion in 1962. Uh, you can kick particles out the back end of a fusion rocket that have 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in the dumb old chemical rocket. And I mention this because we have all this talk about uh, aliens in outer space, the SETI community, and all this sort of stuff. And they look at chemical rockets. 
Dr. Uh, Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson, head of the Hayden Planetarium, he said on the Peter Jennings uh, mockumentary, I called it way back in 2005, that our fastest craft, the Voyager spacecraft, would take 70,000 years to get to the next nearest star if it were heading the right direction, which it isn't. Well, he forgot to add one little factor. It doesn't have a propulsion system on it. It's been coasting since it left the vicinity of the Earth. Now, would you say the best way to communicate across the ocean is to throw a bottle in the ocean with a message inside? <laughs> of course not. You know, but these academic types, they don't know about fusion propulsion. Uh, as a matter of fact, Dr. Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute, he wrote a book, uh, Hunting for Life, uh, and he said, well, fission and fusion rockets aren't worth anything either. Uh, it's obvious he didn't know anything about them. Uh, so I try to keep these guys honest. Uh, incidentally, I debated Seth on Coast to Coast Radio. And uh, I got 57% of the vote, and he got 33%, and 10% said, I don't know who won. Well, he hadn't done his homework. Uh, and I know that, you see. I, I don't just say that. When he and I both got a free trip on the uh, Queen Elizabeth II from England to uh, New York, uh, I gave three lectures. He gave three lectures. We each listened to the other lecture. We were cordial to each other. Uh, and uh, I talked about my five large-scale scientific studies and asked about who had read this one, this one, this one. He hadn't read any of them. Now, many months later, uh, after our debate, I said, how about if I send you my book, Flying Saucers and Science? Okay, and he gave me his address, and I did send it to him. And then several months after that, on Coast to Coast, he said he had it on his nightstand. Didn't say he'd read it. You understand? And that's the problem. We've got discussion in a vacuum here, the vacuum of outer space. You won't find the SETI books. SETI stands for Silly Effort to Investigate. I'm sure you know that. S-E-T-I. Silly oh, Effort to Investigate. <laughs> Aren't you a SETI or grab? No, that's C-SETI, Darren. It's different. That's no, but didn't you used to be part of the... Didn't you used to let them use your resources of your laptop or Oh, some yeah, shit? yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah that, way that, back then. SETI at home. Yeah, that, that's okay. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. But, you know, you realize that SETI refuses to reference the UFO information. Yeah. They have provided not one bit of evidence that there's anybody out there, no less anybody out there, sending signals using a technology that we can uh, decode, if you will. You know, uh, are they sending AM or FM? Uh, and my radio doesn't automatically pick up every station. i got to tune it. So what, what do you think would be the, a better way to use that SETI money for, you know, trying to explore for signals in outer space? Well, I don't think we should be looking for signals from outer space. No? Let's look at the evidence relating to the visitors to planet Earth. That's much more important. You realize there's a little problem here for SETI. If aliens are visiting, who needs to listen? Learn sign language, maybe, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Learn how to wave hello. Yeah. Hi there, folks. What can we do for you? I mean, you realize, why don't they land, people say. Well, on the White House lawn, forget it. They're, you know, it's a no-fly zone. And 
we have airplanes ready to go up and chase anybody. And there were loads of sightings in 1952 over Washington, D.C. And the airplanes were scrambled and they had radar visual cases and so forth. And uh, incidentally, it's lost in history, but the Air Force regulations for pilots at that time, 1952, was shoot them down if they don't land when instructed to do so. Uh, and I've had seven different people after my lectures, after lectures, come up and tell me quietly about being at a military base where planes were sent up, or a plane was sent up and didn't come back. Um, there were 200 plus fatal military plane crashes in the period uh, from 51 to 55. The three of the pilots had over 100 missions in Korea, came back to the United States, and there were MiGs trying to shoot them down in Korea, you understand. They come back to the United States. I mean, you got to be a good pilot to survive 100 missions when people are trying to shoot you down. They come back to the United States, no MiGs, and three of them died in fatal military crashes. Hmm. Yeah, didn't the uh, military change its stance somewhere around Vietnam at shooting at the UFOs because they well, were... Well, it appears that they did yeah. after that. Uh, you know, don't send guys up to their death. Uh, so what I'm saying is there's a lot going on that we don't hear about, especially from the city people. And uh, they'll tell you, look, Seth said... Uh, the proof that the government can't keep secrets, I mean, I talk about a cosmic Watergate. He says the proof they can't keep secrets is how much we know about what a bad job FEMA did when Katrina happened. And, you know, uh, there are loads of examples of spending lots of money under security. That isn't one of them. Now, Dr. Tyson said the proof that we can't keep secrets, the government can't keep secrets, said this in a public lecture at Penn State University, uh, is how much we know about President Clinton's genitalia. <laughs> Very clever remark. Totally unrelated to the question of whether secrets can be kept. So, so speaking of secrets, I, uh, we already pretty much know your stance on Lazar, but he let out a big secret saying that he worked on UFOs at Area 51. So, you know, what... I mean, was it a secret or was it a lie? That's right, yeah. So what would be the purpose of the hoax? Like, why would George Knapp and, and Lear get behind him on this? What's your opinion of that? Story? You know, I, I consider George Knapp the number one ranking uh, UFO journalist, if you will, journalist who knows about UFOs. When my book came out, uh, Flying Saucers and Science, I asked that uh, I talk about it with George when we set a date and he had read it and asked the Best questions. Uh, part of the problem is that, and the only reason I went to find out about uh, Lazar was that people were asking me about him because he was claiming to be a nuclear physicist, and they know I am, so what do you think, Stan? Well, I thought I'd better check to see whether he's he's got the credentials he claims. And, you know, they're pretty impressive. Master's in physics from MIT, Master in electronics from Caltech, that's pretty special stuff. So I checked with MIT, talked to five different offices. Nobody ever heard of him. I talked to legal counsel who said there's no way to wipe his record out, anybody's record out. Caltech never heard of him. George Neff gave me the name of Bob's High School. 
I called, had a very interesting conversation. It turned out he was in the bottom third of his high school class, and he had taken one science course, chemistry, and he graduated in August, not with his class. Now, to get into MIT, you need to be, need to be at least in the top 20% of your class. He was in the bottom third. I know about that because I was accepted there out of high school. I couldn't afford to go. The tuition was too high back then. 950 bucks. Of course, it was 1951, and that was a lot of money. <laughs> I think it's now about it's about 25,000. Like that. Oh, yeah, well, that's gone up in its own. Yeah, just, just a little. Uh, and then also on the air in Rachel, Nevada, the home of the little alien, uh, most famous <laughs> hamburger joint in the country, I guess, uh, he was asked to name uh, some of his professors. He named a guy called Bill Duxler. He'll remember me from Caltech, physics. So I looked in my directory of the American Physical Society. I, of course, am a member. Bob isn't a member of anything, has never published any papers. And I found Duxler, and turns out I never taught at Caltech, only at Pierce Junior College. I mean, it's close geographically, but not intellectually in California. And he checked and found that he'd had Bob in a night school course at Pierce Junior College at the same time when Bob was supposedly at MIT. So why, uh, look, I'm a dumb old physicist. I'm not a psychiatrist. Why was he, was he looking for attention? Did somebody pay him to tell his phony story? I don't know. All, uh, my question is, is he telling the truth? And yes, I talked to a professor, a guy who was a consultant there, a PhD from MIT. Matter of fact, at Los Alamos, and he saw Bob there, uh, and was at a security briefing. So he obviously had a clearance. Bob's name was in the phone book at Los Alamos. He worked at the big Maison accelerator facility. None of that proves he was a scientist. They needed technicians out there. Lots of people work out there who aren't scientists. I know I visited uh, Los Alamos more than once. Janitors. Oh. Well, okay. They they need clearances, too, incidentally. I'd give him credit for being a technician. He, he's pretty handy. Uh, well, let me give you another example. He said that uh, they, used five, they had 500 pounds of element 115. Wow. Well, the half-life is less than two minutes. You cannot collect. 500. You can't collect one pound. The big experiment that revealed the existence of 115 uh, produced four atoms of it. And by this time, they run it again in other accelerators. It's uh, uh, over 100 atoms. You can't do anything with 100 atoms. Uh, so what I'm saying is here, we have a pattern of misrepresentation. Is that a nice way of saying that? Yeah, that's pretty politically correct. You know, I thought maybe they would be going down the disinformation route with him, but you would think that he would have had the proper credentials then. You know, it wouldn't be so easy to debunk his actual education. So, Well, it turns out lots of people don't check on other people. I called the Air Force Academy one time about somebody who claimed to have a degree from there, and I was suspicious because he didn't sound like it. And I talked to the registrar, and no, he didn't graduate from there. Uh, I said, do you get a lot of calls about people who claim to have gone there and didn't? All the time was her answer. Mm. And she says, we're a prestigious place, and people throw it on their resume, and uh, once in a while, somebody checks. 
you know, I'm impressed with Bob. I was there in Arizona when he did the long interview with George. And, you know, uh, and I still am impressed with George. Uh, but it's hard for me to imagine that the government couldn't do better than having a guy without any diplomas, without any papers. Uh, and do you know anybody who has a diploma from a prestigious university who doesn't still have a copy? Hmm. Yeah. So, so this was the uh, the recent, like last year's. Uh, was that last year when you saw him there? Then, yeah, February. And, and that so that so you still you still maintain the same position after that, even me or him? You. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I had given him a list of questions. I wanted questions from people to be asked, and yeah. didn't ask any of my questions. <laughs> of course. And he and George dashed out uh, right at the end of the program. So I, I couldn't go any farther than that. But uh, uh, look, if you ask me why he did, I'm the wrong guy to ask. There are a lot of people who lie about their background. There was a guy who was going to be a football coach at Notre Dame who uh, tacked on a an unreal degree who lost the job because of that. So in your experience working on these secret projects and stuff what do you think the chances are that there could be something like that at a place like area 51 where these guys are actually reverse engineering saucers and whatnot do well, you actually think that's possible I, well sure and look there have been a number of crashes Roswell isn't the only one uh there's a new book out incident at aztec also oh, i heard Mexico. about that one and it's a darn good study by uh the ramses Scott and Suzanne, and boy, they did a bang-up job. Everybody used to think that was a phony story, but they dug into it. Of course, uh, Suzanne lived, uh, her family is from New Mexico, so they could go out there and had a place to stay and so forth. But um, And uh, Scott sells electrical equipment, and she had customers out there, too. So, But they really dug into it. <clears throat> Get the facts. That's what it's all about. So I'm not saying there isn't anybody working on reverse engineering UFOs. I'm not saying that at all. And Area 51 might be one place you'd do it. Los Alamos is another. Uh, there are a lot of places. You know, people don't realize Los Alamos has more than 6,000 employees. Yeah, that's crazy. We were just looking into Brookhaven Labs for this for this movie that we watched, like this uh, this sci fi movie, and and Brookhaven's got like over three thousand people. So there's like out of two labs, Oak there's ten thousand people working in those. Labs. There's Oak Ridge National Laboratory. There's Sandia National Laboratory. There's Livermore National Laboratory. These have thousands. Uh, the budget for Los Alamos last year was over two billion dollars. And would you believe? I had two different professors uh, in radio shows say, look, if Roswell had happened, they'd had to pull half the professor physics props out of colleges to analyze that stuff. And I laughed and I said, you've got to be kidding. There are plenty of people with clearances and talent. The three nuclear weapons lab had labs, when I checked a few years back, the total budget was greater than that for the National Science Foundation. Three nuclear weapons labs. Where there's handbooks out there too, uh, but there's somehow in the academic world they think the only place research gets done is academia, uh, and that's simply not true. Uh, and it's easy to prove it isn't true. 
Where do you fall in on that? Of course, the NSA, the CIA, and the NRO. (laughs) And the DIA. And there's a whole bunch of these intelligence agencies. And there's an important point here that I I need to bring up. Uh, The Air Force will tell you that, well, we had Project Blue Book, and that was it. And when it was canceled in 69, that was the end of it. And there's no national security aspect and nothing to it. That's a lie also. In 1969, early on, Dr. Condon of the University of Colorado study, in his big fat report, the scientific study on UFOs, uh, they recommended that Project Blue Book be closed. So the Air Force asked a general, Carol Bolander, who was an engineer on the lunar excursion module. Remember, we landed on the moon in 1969. Allegedly. Uh, I, no alleged as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> the introduction to, or the forward to my book, Flying Size and Size, was done by Edgar Mitchell, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon. So, hey, do, you think they, do you think they saw saucers up there like the rumors, rumor goes? Well, I don't know whether they saw saucers up there or not. That I don't, I don't have an answer for. But I do think we landed there. But uh, the important thing is that it was a major effort involving loads of people, thousands of people, uh, just as the Manhattan Project involved tens of thousands of people. And with a big budget to separate uranium isotopes, we built a mile-long facility. This is during World War II, mind you. Uh, it used 5% of the electrical power in the being produced in the United States to pump uh, a uranium-containing gas through little holes and nickel plates through this mile-long facility, all in secret, mind you, to gradually enrich the uranium. Five percent electrical power when electrical, and that's why it was in Tennessee because they had the dam, the Tennessee Valley uh, Agency there. So. You know, it, it, there was a lot going on that people don't seem to understand, aren't aware of. And we, we, somebody undoubtedly received pieces of the wreckage. And, well, I'll give you a, a specific example. Uh, I was the first to talk to Major Jesse Marcel, who was the intelligence officer in Roswell. and. They found uh, lots of pieces, small pieces of stuff, shiny metallic um, foil-like material, a lot of it that if you crumbled, it would uncrumble and so forth. Mm -hmm. Well, my approach to all this thing would have been you send this stuff out to your best classified labs and you say, what is this stuff? You don't tell them where you got it. They don't have a need to know for that. Uh, and a guy comes back to you and says, you know, I don't know what, where you got this stuff, but it's a combination of samarium and cobalt. Why would you put those two together? Not your problem. Send it off to other people. What are the electrical, magnetic, thermal, nuclear properties of this stuff? And a guy comes back and says, you know, I measured the highest magnetic moment of any material I ever measured. Make a great permanent magnet. 
And believe it or not, the ghetto blasters, the magnets in them years ago, were Samarium and Cobalt. Well, I used to suggest that uh, maybe we learned about that from UFOs. Well, I was doing an article. I did a, a weekly science commentary for CBC Radio here in Fredericton. This is in the 80s. And I was reading an article about new and better permanent magnets, uh, neodymium iron boron, and there really is such stuff. <laughs> and at the end of the article, it said the original work on samarium cobalt was done at Wright Air Development Center, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, where I know some of the wreckage from Roswell went. I just laughed my head off. But I know where that idea came from. <laughs> Doesn't tell you how to build a saucer, but it sure can give you a strong magnetic field. What do you think about um, <clears throat> summoning UFOs in the desert and these groups like Sea SETI? And do you think there's anything? I'm not to a that? big fan of that. No, I think it's a good way for some people to make money. Hey, that's what I think <laughs> too. <laughs> you know, it gets people outside, and I guess I can't complain about that. It's night in the desert. Yeah, it gets and people night. looking up. Yeah, and, and that's spending a good thing. money, eating peyote. Well, you know. Uh, a leader of one of the SETI groups offered people an opportunity. They could come to his uh, farm in Virginia, and it would only cost 600 bucks for the weekend, and all expenses covered. And he would tell them everything he knew, but they would have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Hmm. <laughs> I think that's funny when you're talking about disclosure. And... You know, you better sign a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, so, no, I'm not a fan of SETI, uh, of uh, the disclosure movement project, whatever you want to call it. What What about consciousness in, in general? Like, <clears throat> how does that of like, you know, Grant well, Cameron's think, done a lot of work. There's been a lot of work done now that, that somehow our consciousness is, is related to the phenomena. Well, I... wouldn't it be astonishing <clears throat> if an advanced civilization didn't know more about these... I'll call them paranormal things, uh, telepathy, uh, reincarnation, uh, mind control. I would expect an advanced civilization to know a heck of a lot more about those things than we do. And you can see almost all the best abduction cases, it's clear that telepathy is the means of communication. And in my book, uh, Kathleen Marden, Betty Hill's niece, and I, she's a, a top-notch abduction investigator. And uh, in our book, Science Was Wrong, we each did seven chapters. She did a whole fine chapter on, I'll call it, evidence for paranormal phenomena. Published papers in the academic scientific literature, which are ignored by the people who say there is no such thing. Uh, don't bother me. There are th four basic rules for debunkers. doesn't matter what you're debunking. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. What the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. If you can't attack the data, attack the people. It's easier. And do your research by proclamation. Investigation is too much trouble, and nobody will know the difference anyway. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about ghosts or telepathy or saucers. Uh, you find the same thing. And uh, it, it's a sad commentary about our society, but it's true. It must be changing a little bit now with the Internet and with like what we're doing right now is going to go out, you know, in a week or two to 
all over the world. People are going to hear this. They've heard, they've heard you a lot. You've been doing this for decades. Has it, has it changed? Like, is it opening up? I, I seem to always want to ask this question, but I'm super interested on how things are changing over the last, even like five, well, I've, even I've five or 10 years. People are very receptive, uh, but they almost always have been much to my surprise. At the beginning, I was worried about, I was going to get a real hard time from debunkers, not at my lectures. So uh, I just spoke in England. I've spoken in 19 countries, uh, or 18, 19 coming up. And uh, exposure, everywhere it's pretty much the same. People are interested, excited, intrigued. And, you know, an illustration of this, in one college class uh, earlier in the day to promote my evening lecture, the instructor and I worked out a little scheme. Let's poll the students, but let's have them vote with their eyes closed. So they're not influenced by the other students. And you count the, uh, the votes, I said to him. Fine. Well, it turns out 80% of the kids thought most people didn't believe in UFOs, but 80% of them did believe in UFOs. <laughs> so that's why I've had so few hecklers. Uh, because most people are, are closet <laughs> ufologists, if you want to put it that way. But but how much of well, that how much of that is gonna like when are we gonna be able to see a change in the in the the mainstream paradigm like how much how much of this groundswell do we need after decades of people believing more? Oh, than remember anymore? the government's got good reasons for keeping things secret. Uh, and people say why you know why don't they land on the White House lawn and so forth and so on about the aliens? But why doesn't the government tell us what it wants to know? Is what we want to know? Are they fearful of panic? You know, war of the worlds and all that stuff. I don't think so. I think a quick rundown on reasons for the cover-up. Hey, you want to figure out how the darn things work. They make wonderful weapons delivery and defense systems. You set up your secret project, and rule number one for security, people have forgotten there was a long, hard, cold war out there. Rule number one is you can't tell your friends without telling your enemies. They read the papers, too, and listen to radio shows. Uh, second problem is the opposite side of the coin. What if the other guys figure out how they work before we do? We don't want them to know. We know they know. <laughs> weapon, counter-weapon, counter-counter-weapon, bigger spears, stronger shields. You know, this is an, an age-old game. The third problem is, suppose an announcement were made by two highly trusted individuals around the world. A little hard to find, but my best choice is the Pope and the Queen. Uh, you know, uh, what if they were to make an announcement? We have it on good authority that Earth is being visited by intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft. And we're able to announce that there will be a number of international conferences over the next six months discussing all the implications of that. What would happen? Well, church attendance would go up, mental hospital admissions would go up, stock market would go down because uncertainty is the, the big enemy. But I think one of the biggest things that would happen is that the younger generation would push for a new view of ourselves. Instead of as Canadians, Americans, Greeks, Peruvians, whatever, Chinese, Indian, earthling. I know of no government on this planet that wants its citizens to owe their allegiance to the planet. Uh... You know, nationalism is the only game in town. The total military budget this year on this planet is $1 trillion. A lot of kids died of starvation last night and tomorrow and the next day and so forth. 
a trillion dollars on things military. And so uh, when people say, why would aliens come here? One reason, I think, would be to quarantine us. <laughs> Look, in World War II, we killed 50 million of our own kind. We destroyed 1,700 cities with those big blockbuster bombs and so forth. Uh, and since the war, and this surprises people, we have exploded 2,000 plus little nuclear weapons. Since? 2,000. Uh, we're not nice guys. Anybody who comes here recognizes, I mean, you leave radioactivity and so forth. These guys are onto the nuclear stuff. And there's a book, Nukes and UFOs, by Robert Hastings. And uh, former military guy, Robert Salas who was at the Minuteman Missile Launch Facility where the saucer came and 10 mm -hmm. Minuteman missiles went down, one after the other. Not supposed to happen. Can't happen. But it did. So the aliens are obviously concerned about our nuclear weapons. So we, as a planet, aren't ready to join the Galactic Federation. Surely they won't allow people in who are as primitive as we are. What uh, about Denisovians? <laughs> About who? <laughs> Darren thinks he has some ancient Denisovian blood, so he's uh, oh. joking around about it. So, oh, so, well, uh, okay. <laughs> but you, you get my point. Yeah. Uh, we live in a strange world. So what about... And, uh, what about the beyond the government, like like you know the secret uh, breakaway civilization type stuff? Like you talk about, of course, some of the logical reasons why the government doesn't want to give up any of this technology. But what are your thoughts about you know an organization that's beyond the government, sort of more international, that have sort of the lid on this? Well, I don't know if there is such an organization. I. Uh, I know, conspiracy theorists love it, but I'm not one of the conspiracy theorists. Look, any sensible billionaire would want to know what's going on, because if the secret comes out, it might affect all his investments, you know? Right. Uh, so he'd be interested. But I see no signs of them ruling the roost, you know? The shadowy elite? It would, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, they know everything. And maybe they do. But I, I can prove to you that the NSA is covering stuff up. Not just because of Mr. Snowden. <laughs> you know. uh, and the NRO. Many people never heard of the NRO, the National Reconnaissance yeah. Office. Yeah, let's talk They're, about that a little bit, Stan. You're one of the original MJ-12 investigators. If you could, you know, for the audience, maybe sort of give the rundown of... Uh... Yeah. Those documents, well, what happened there? That's why I mentioned General Bolander, because what he said in his memo was that reports which could affect national security are not part of the Blue Book system, which is an extremely incredible statement. He said that in 1969. And he also, the paragraph later, said, uh, it, if we close Project Blue Book, and it was closed as a result of this memo, the public won't have a place to report sightings. However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security will continue to be investigated using the procedures designed for that purpose. Okay, where did those cases go? Well, when I, I managed to locate Bolander 10 years after this, uh, and 
talked to him. I said, it seems to me like you're saying there are two, two separate communication channels here. One for national security-related sightings, and I mentioned one that I had just heard about at that time of a saucer going down the runway at a SAC base where nuclear weapons were stored. That's national security no matter how you slice it. He agreed with me. I said, if my wife and I see a saucer out on the, we're out on the street and we see a saucer go by, big deal it happens all the time. Two separate channels. He said, yes. So where did those sightings go? And I say to Operation Majestic 12. Hmm. And we got a roll of film, which had some incredible documents. And then that was followed over the next few years by documents that I can prove to you are phony. But I've got a whole book, Top Secret Magic, M-A-J-I-C. And I deal with all the objections to the documents and show that none of them hold up. There really was an MJ-12. I'm sure the name has changed. Majestic 12. Magic 12. Established by President Truman. And one of the clinchers was the the group was named in this uh, briefing document for President Eisenhower. And one of the people on the list, there were five military guys and uh, five scientists and Secretary of Defense and the 12th guy. Uh, one of the guys on the list was totally improbable, Dr. Donald Menzel, Harvard University professor of astronomy, who had written three anti-UFO books. How could he be a member of a group that knew about crash saucers, alien bodies, etc.? Well, to make a long story short, I had to get permission from three different people to see his papers at Harvard. All these guys were dead, which is very convenient, of course. Uh, and I discovered to my total shock, because I didn't like him while he was alive, he was such a debunker. Uh, he told Jack Kennedy that he had a longer continuous association with the NSA of anybody 30 years at that time. That was 1960 when he wrote that to Kennedy. And it turns out he was a world-class cryptographer and did classified work for 20 different companies and for the CIA and other agencies. That was a real shocker because it was so totally unexpected. I got proof of it. Got his letter, copies of his letters to Kennedy and his unpublished autobiography in which he mentions it. There was a loyalty hearing. That's how I found out about this. They were trying to take away his clearance, and what was he doing with the clearance, you know? So I followed up on it, and the story's in my book. But any, incidentally, if people are interested in my books, uh, my website is www.stantonfriedman.com. And the one thing I can offer if you buy your books from me that you won't get from Amazon is an autograph, free, personalized. <laughs> uh, and so... Uh, Majestic 12, and you'll get all kinds of people talking. Oh, those were all phony. And I think there are four genuine documents. I don't care about the 50 that are phony. Mm-hmm. You know, the basketball coach says, yeah, I know most people aren't seven feet tall. Give me one. <laughs> you keep the midgets, you know. <laughs> so uh, you you got to focus on what's relevant. And, yes, a chemical rocket won't get you to the stars. A fusion rocket would. Can I build one for you tomorrow? No. Cost a ton of money. Next week. Maybe. With enough Not even next year. Uh and you know, I don't I don't think Earthlings should be trying to go to the stars anyway until we get our act together. Who speaks for the planet? Nobody I know. <laughs> Certainly the president of the United States doesn't speak for seven billion earthlings. 
What uh, I got a question, a data question for you, and help settle an. Or not, well, it's not really an argument, but we were a discussion. We, yeah, yeah, we talk about because I think like the uh, what? What do you think the reporting rate, like a reporting rate to MUFON, would be of uh of say if a thousand people seen it? Do you think what? Do you, how many of those people would report to a MUFON? MUFON or and other organizations or just MUFON? MUFON, because well, it was a MUFON thing that I judged you said unfairly okay well mufon typically these days is getting roughly a thousand reports a month a month and i get people call me how come i haven't been any sightings lately stan <laughs> they don't know about those kinds of reports and so uh it, typical large number of sightings i'd say 20 percent are unknowns I mean, in Blue Book Special Report 14, 21.5%. In the Condon study, it was 30%, believe it or not. In uh, the calls, the UFO evidence, it was like 18%. I so, so I'm wondering um, more what the reporting rate would be. Like how many, because how many people, if a thousand people seen a UFO over a city, oh, say over a city of a million people, a thousand people see the same thing. How many of those, how many of those people report it to MUFON? I don't know, uh, maybe a hundred, but I, I think back, uh, there's going to be a big discussion about a new movie about um, the Phoenix Lights, Yeah. and thousands of people saw those things, Yeah. and uh, the Air Force lied about them. As a matter of fact, the governor lied, but he came clean later on on the Larry King show. He had yeah. been an Air Force pilot, and he knew, he saw the Phoenix Lights. And he sure as heck knew it wasn't any any conventional airplane, certainly not a National Guard airplane or anything like that. But he was afraid of panic and all this other stuff, so he had one of his guys in the office dress up in a alien outfit and made fun of the whole business. But to his credit, ex-Governor Symington did come clean on Larry King. I think Stan had that question answered when he was doing his lectures and he was asking how many people had a sighting and how many people reported it. And it was like, like 5% had sightings and 90% didn't report it. Yeah. So that's, that's, a yeah, really so that, I think it would be 90%. less than 10. Yeah. Did you report yeah. yours, Graham? Uh, I did. And yeah, I went back to MUFON later and it was gone. <laughs> so that was, that was frustrating. Well, I've got a couple of listener questions here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, from, I guess we already answered the one about putting Greer on the same list as Lazar and Corso. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so we got a couple yes. from Adam Loyal, uh, a Grimerican in his own right. The first one is, have you ever had any experiences with psychedelics? I mean, have I taken LSD or something? I suppose. You don't no, have to I answer that. I haven't taken any drugs, and but I've never had a UFO sighting either. Oh, oh. Look, I chased neutrons and gamma rays. Radiation shielding was in my business for 14 years. <laughs> never saw a neutron or a gamma ray. They're real, too. <laughs> yeah. He's got uh, his next question is, what? What? Um, do you have any synchronicities? That I can rate. Synchronicities. It's kind of like the, his book when he bought that first book. That was a synchronicity well, in a way. Nah, I don't think so. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, 
I uh, I can't think of any offhand. Uh, I'm just a straightforward, dumb old nuclear physicist. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, his last one is, what wisdom do you have for the next generation of ufologers? Well, I just gave a paper at the MUFON conference about how to make ufology more respectable. <laughs> and uh, My major point is have facts in hand before putting mouth or computer in gear. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid to speak up. Tell it like it is. It's okay. Make sure you can back up anything you say. But I've been out there. I come, you know, after the first 700 lectures, you get a feeling for how people react. And uh, in all kinds of places and big colleges. And I've spoken at Harvard and I've spoken at UC Berkeley and a lot of other places, obviously. Uh, And it's okay. Just make sure you do your homework. And don't presume we know all there is to know. Yeah. That's where the debunkers come get into trouble. Well, I can't figure out how to go to the stars, so nobody can. You know, that sort of thing. And what do you mean they use telepathy? Well, that's what the the investigations indicate. Yeah. I'd recommend the book by Kathleen Martin and myself, Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. And what makes that book, in that case, so important is that the psychiatrist who did the hypnosis was Dr. Benjamin Simon, who was a world-class expert on post-traumatic stress disorder, shell shock war veterans. He ran a hospital with 3,000 beds after the Second World War, and he worked out the techniques for getting people back together, so to speak. You know, a guy has his buddy's head blown off next to him. That's a little hard to handle. And Dr. Simon uh, is the one in the movie. The Army made a movie, Let There Be Light, about Shoshak War veterans and getting him back to, to being good again. And he has said in writing that the emotional intensity in Betty and Barney's voices, they did 10 sessions each separately, was every bit as great as that in these Shoshak War veterans. Mm. And he had to stop one session each because he wasn't sure they could handle it, the emotional. Now, coming from him, that means something. A garden variety party hypnotist doesn't mean a darn thing. But coming from Dr. Ben Simon, uh, it means a great deal. So you got to go with the flow, go with the data, go with the guys who know. Uh, and... We we have that data out there. Good advice. I agree, but there's enough data now. So we have one more question here from Red Pill Junkie, who's a regular regular guy on our show here. He says, if he if you ever had a chance to meet a real alien, let's say extraterrestrial, and had permission to ask one question and one question only, what would it be? Why are you guys here? Yeah. Makes sense to me your hypothesis about after we became nuclear. Why no would they show up, right? Why do you think we're they're here, Stan? We're a threat to the Stan? neighborhood. That's for sure. Why do you think they're here, Stan? Because we're a threat. Yeah. Well, I think uh, quarantine would be first on my list. 
<laughs> Second, I, I've got a whole list in, in my book, Flying Sciences and Science. The, they're graduate students doing their thesis research on the development of a primitive society. Uh, they're being punished. Spend two weeks near Earth. That's punishment to last a lifetime, you know. Uh, maybe this was a uh, uh, a prison, a penal colony. They dumped all the bad boys and girls here, and that's why we're so nasty to each other. And, you know, Australia and Georgia were both started by convicts. <laughs> the Australians seem to be proud of it, at least they, when I was down there. <laughs> the Georgians aren't, but that's different. Uh so I think there are a whole, you know, why did people travel? And if you go back a few hundred years, look at all those guys who went after gold in the Yukon uh, or in California. The guys who went after oil in the oil patch. And people have loads of reasons for traveling. But one of them, I would expect, is to take care of threats to the neighborhood. Hmm. So do you think that the government is actually in cahoots then with the extraterrestrials and, you know, maybe there's some sort of agenda there? It wouldn't surprise me if there was some kind of an agreement. You leave us alone and we will leave you guys alone. Uh, That wouldn't surprise me. Uh, It would make sense. You know, you you could, for example, they're, they're looking at genetics. There's some diseases that only a few people have, so you got to pick up an awful lot of specimens to get some DNA from them, don't you? Mm-hmm. You know, and if I'd said that before we invented or discovered DNA, you'd have said, you're crazy. What do you mean? There isn't any DNA. What kind of nonsense is that? Well, it's real, and we can manipulate it. So aliens may be looking for goodies for their <laughs> their colonies. Who knows? Have, have you ever thought about if you, if what, what you would do if you had unlimited resources and in, in ufology, like well, if somebody donated in a billion dollars to you or a few million dollars. I've thought of some things I'd, I would do, of course. I would, first of all, I'd uh, have every newspaper in the country carry an article saying, if you have a piece of a saucer, you know, sitting in the uh, bureau drawer, uh, contact us and we'd like to get test run on it. Nice. If you... If you have a sighting, had a sighting when you were in the military, so you might have been involved with radar, airplanes, you know. You know, people forget. Most individuals don't have their own radar set, don't have their own spy satellite. You know, the NSA is capable of doing things that you and I aren't. And the same with the Air Defense Command. I'd love to be in an airplane chasing a UFO and have my radar and six instruments picking up signals from the UFO, but I I don't have that situation. So I think if if we had enough money, uh, I would set up a number of individual committees to deal with certain aspects of this. What does it mean for religion? A serious discussion. There's a wonderful book uh, by Dr. Barry Downing called The Bible and Flying Saucers. Uh, He has a bachelor's in physics and a doctor of divinity. Divine physics is his beat. And uh, he goes through the Old and New Testament and finds saucer sightings. Well, that has some implications. Uh, You know, and part of what we're trying to do here is to get rid of our arrogance. Not too many years ago, we'd have said we're the only thinking beings in the whole darn galaxy. And no other solar systems out there. If there were, we'd know about them because we're so smart. 
I don't think anybody's saying that now. And especially after Kepler. The general consensus now, and I checked with three astronomers recently, is that there's about one planet per star. Some have eight planets, some have none, but overall average about one per star. Well, how many people recognize that there are at least 10,000 stars within 100 light years of here? Wow. That means about 10,000 planets. That's exciting (laughs) to me, anyway. So I would expect the Galactic Federation to have a neighborhood border guard, if you will. You know, we just celebrated Pearl Harbor Day. Well, some people, some of us did, because I remember it. (laughs) Uh, Well, I do. Uh, I was uh, seven years old at that time, I guess. Uh, And we... Uh, well, to show what wrong thinking gets you, in the Army-Navy football game the week before Pearl Harbor Day, uh, there was a picture of the USS Arizona, big battleship. And in the text, it said, nobody's ever sunk a battleship from the air. Pearl Harbor Day, a week later, they sunk the USS Arizona, 1,100 guys on board. Uh, the Japanese knew you could sink a ship with a plane. Wow. And so uh, that's why I mentioned the book, uh, Science Was Wrong. Uh, there's a long history of smart people saying stupid things, uh, including an astronomer who said man would never fly any distance in an airplane. Another one, umpteen years later, saying space travel is utter bilge. That was a year before Sputnik. The first comment was uh, two months before the Wright brothers' first flight. <laughs> And so we have to be very careful that we don't predetermine things when we don't have enough data. Well said. So Stanton, we don't want to keep you for too long here. We've already gone past uh, past time here. Yeah, so is I know. there anything uh thanks for thanks for, you know, spending all this time with us. Is there anything else you you feel like we left out that you wanna tell the world? No, I think uh, just keep your not only keep your eyes on the sky, but recognize that we live in a big universe, and there are guys that could be a million years more advanced than we are. It wouldn't be surprising if they can do things that we can't do. A little uh, ignorance should get rid of a lot of arrogance. And I think we need to get rid of some of that arrogance and recognize that cosmos is not the way we think it was mm-hmm. years ago. Mm. Well, said, are you speaking anywhere coming up at all? Are you, are you going to be at uh, UFO Congress oh, yeah. this year? I'll, I'll be at the International UFO Congress, yes. Uh, and uh, I'll be speaking in Roswell, of course. And if they look on my website, they'll find a list of lectures coming up. Okay, good. That's all up to date. I'll send. I'll put a link uh, to that in the show notes. Good. All right. Well, thanks. Okay. A, thanks a lot, Stan. Thank Great you. Chatting with you. My yeah. pleasure. Have a good trip uh, to you. India in January. There. Gonna try. Okay. All right. <laughs>
And that was our chat with Stanton Friedman, um, much anticipated, I'm sure. What did you, you think, learn buddy? Something? I learned that. Uh, yeah, I learned a few things. <laughs> You're gonna try and see something smart, act smart, Alki there. Smart Alki. I learned that. Uh, yeah, I've heard him quite a few times, and I've seen him live, and I still I learned I still a lot get, because I still I've get never stuff really out of knew chats. who he was. Yeah, I still get stuff out of his chats, so. Like you guys said, when we were getting started, you and James were like, knew everything. You know, like, well, no, everybody already knows that shit. And I was like, well, I, I don't. Like all that nuclear physicist stuff, all that stuff. Like mm -hmm. that was all new news to me. So it's interesting to hear his background and all that. For our guests that haven't heard that. And of course, hopefully some new stuff for our guests that have been, or listeners that have been following his career. Yeah. Like some of his takes too on the people and how people do believe in it. Like, when he's in lectures and stuff and he talks about like he'll he make, doesn't get a lot of blowback or, yeah it's probably just the internet baseless yeah, the YouTube trolls because you go to something like that I mean people have obviously they've decided to take the time to go and watch it knowing no, what it's not, about yeah but the, he's at no, universities like, surprise, and stuff motherfucker. too right? he's not just at yeah, is it mandatory conferences. though yeah I know but is it mandatory like you decide to go to the conference right right which is I think what you face most of the time right people aren't gonna I don't think a lot of people come to your speaking of maybe if you're talking about global warming probably <laughs> yeah it is a polarizing topic though ufos too there's quite a few skeptics there's still so many people that just don't believe in the reality at all which blows me away does it it does i'm not sure i'm there I'm not talking about ET. I'm not talking like, about ET. I'm talking like about just head roll. I'm just talking about you had your own you sighting. Your whole head. You, you, you had your own sighting. I'm not talking about ETs. Okay. It's just just UFOs. Something. Because you know somebody's flying around. Advent or uh, I'm not a proponent of the alien reptilian agenda. <laughs> I had someone else asking about the group. Everyone's curious. Have you heard oh, of really? this? Yeah. No, but people want to start up our own, so. Oh, you guys are going to start. <laughs> Actually, nice. James Nation was talking about it. He was, uh, he's like, let's start up our own group. So, there you go. I'm still in touch with some and of then guys. Then wait till you get, steal all his group members, and then when he comes over, say, yeah, yeah, and then kick him out. <laughs> Actually, I would welcome him. Would you? Yeah. Let's see. I don't hold resentments. No. I try not to. <laughs> I think you do. I, really? Sometimes. With who? Well, you don't. Maybe the you global don't. Warming, you, you global warming. Sure, global sure alarmist. The warming alarmist. You sure go through a process of dumping said resentment. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely doesn't just deflect off you sometimes. It like absorbs you, rips you apart from the inside out, and then leaves. Oh, <laughs> thanks. That's nice. Yeah. Is it nice? That's a nice description. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, big thanks to Stanton for coming on the show. Uh, big thanks to Frederick for coming on the show. Big thanks to James for coming on the show. And, of course, wow, becoming big, big episode. first member of the 432 Club, which, of course, is donate uh, in the amount of $432 or more. And join us for an interview with the guest of your choosing. Upon Grand American approval, of course. Uh, yeah, which we're, we're pretty easy. Not that we have to say that because people know that they trust us. 
Yeah. And we trust you to do your own accounting. So <laughs> <laughs> let us know when you're there. Uh, check out grammarica.ca slash support. You'll f- see all the different options. Monthlies, one times. Uh, tell your friends about the show. We are going to try and get some pictures of the t-shirts on the support page. Right. Uh, spam gram. Tell your friends. Sign them up for the newsletter. America.ca slash news. Review the show. Grammarica.ca slash iTunes will take you there on your iPhone right now. You can review the show. And those links are all in the show notes. Yeah. It's under the doobie doobie do list. He's a pro. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.
say they like coast to coast But on demand Raw and uncut interviews And all without no ads One says false and one says true And the rate you sing grows too America, America is here for you Stories from the listeners They sent to Graham He'll read the man, be amazed But Darren may say no One says red and one says blue But if it's false it just won't do 